What's shaping the worldview, values and priorities for our future leaders? In this show, we talk to Talia Grantham, a young entrepreneur, about her experiences of working in a startup and the things that truly matter to her in her life and work. Hello and welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender and with me as always is my friend and a man widely considered to be one of Britain's citizens, John Gomes. <laughs> How are you feeling today, John? Well, I'm, I'm doing really well um, and I'm really excited to have our guest on um, because I actually know her. Um, Scott, how are you feeling? I'm feeling uh, positive and uh, quite curious about our guest today. Can you tell us a bit about her? Sure, yeah. I first met Talia at a talk I was giving a couple of years ago to undergraduate students uh, in London. She came up to me afterwards and she really asked me some quite uh, challenging but astute questions, which I always appreciate. And later she worked with us as an intern where she made a big impression on our team as part of our Innovation Accelerator And for the last 18 months, she's been part of the leadership team as the COO of Brightshift, which is a full-service social marketing agency based on a community model. And it's attracting a global community of so-called Brightshifters, senior consultants and digital freelancers and social media influencers. And they've already built up a very significant influencer network of some 400,000 people with a total social reach of 1.5 billion people. So as they put it, the beauty of the Bright Shifters model is that they only work with startups and corporates who are genuinely seeking to trigger positive change in the world. And they call it the positive propaganda. So their clients are on a mission to change the world and their mission is to help them do it. So Talia, welcome. Thank you. So before we come to what you're doing at Brightshift, which seems really exciting, I'd like to give our listeners a window on your world as a young leader and an entrepreneur and in many ways, all of our futures are resting on your shoulders to change the world. Wow. No pressure, Talia. <laughs> so, Talia, can we start with just a, a tour of your values and worldview? What, what's important to you and why? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start that off with a bit of background because I think the last four years for me have really affected sort of my values and my paradigms in the world now. So I finished university in April of this year during the fun pandemic, um, which was an exciting experience to sort of finish three years of hard work, but definitely quite stressful at the time. Um, But in the last four years, I've had the pleasure of working for six different companies and two not-for-profits, which has really been an exceptional opportunity, really, and really fascinating in terms of what I've learned and who I've become as a person. And I'd say, if you ask my younger self, what do you want to do with your life? I'd say, I want to get rich. Say, you know, I'll sell my soul to a corporate, Uh, work as hard as I can in my life, get some good money. And that's my life done. That's my job done. And I took a step out of education. I took a gap year. I took that step out of education out of the linear funnel. And I really realized there's so much more to the world than just A to B. There's so many other opportunities. And when I came to London in 2017, I started working around different startups, uh, big, small, uh, you know, worldwide backroom ideas, really, really, really interesting stuff. And that changed my perception of the world quite, quite a lot. And through that, I realized that sort of some of the key values that I hold true to myself is really being dependable. I realized that the startups that I hated working in were the ones where everybody was a flake. You couldn't trust anything that anybody promised to deliver. And actually, we made no progress whatsoever. 
I also think a massive thing for me is creativity. I actually studied art and I wanted to be an artist when I was older for a good 10 years of my life. I was going to go to a fine art school, do everything, become a full-time professional artist. And then I had a real brainwave when I was about 17 where I thought, actually, I wanted to be really creative with my mind and not my hands. And that took me on sort of a new trajectory in terms of business. But I've kept that creativity and that innovation when I'm sort of day to day, when I'm making decisions, when we're deciding what we're going to do with the business. That's a massive, massive part of my life. Uh, And I'd also say this idea of balance. Now, that was something that didn't occur to my younger self when I said that I wanted to sell my soul and become rich. But this idea that it's okay not to be on all the time, this idea that you really need to balance what's good for you as a person and also what's good for your career, your life outside of that. So how much to be selfless and how much to be selfish. That was a massive sort of thing for me. And it's that balance is a really big value that I now take forward in and really back myself in. So where's that? I love this um, thing where you've experienced some flaky startups (laughs) with flaky people, because I suppose there's a a generation of people who've got this uh, rather romantic notion that they'll join a startup, it'll be all fun, drinking cappuccinos in these kind of um, lifestyle hangouts, and then they'll all be millionaires within three years. Um, so the, the kind of mindset of deep accountability, uh, which we're, Scott and I are really interested in, what, what does that look like to you? What, what, are you? what are you doing to take real ownership of what the, the, the opportunities that you've got in front of you? Well, I think that dream that you've just described is pretty much the dream that I thought I was going to walk into. That was sort of the assumption I made of what a startup was. It was all bean bags and frothy coffees <laughs> and sort of these these side incentives to work for the company that meant that you didn't mind being paid minimum wage. was effectively what a startup was sold to you as, especially when I joined London and when I was on the search for internships right at the start of my career journey. And more and more opportunities have come up over time. And this idea of accountability, this idea of dependability, I realized that you can say as much as you like and describe yourself in as many terms as possible. You could say, I'm really dependable. I'm going to be there 100% for you. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to the decisions you make and the decisions you make for yourself and for other people. And I say it completely manifests at ground level. Those flaky startups that I've talked about are the ones that, that have these incredible bits of marketing and propaganda. They describe the company in the way that people want to know it to pay for it and to spend money on it and to grow the company but actually working for them wasn't an enjoyable opportunity it wasn't enjoyable because I didn't agree with the decisions that people were making they definitely weren't making any decisions for the benefit of myself or any other employees and actually that growth that they talk about that scale that they talk about wasn't authentic at all it wasn't organic it wasn't in any way actually positive scaling it wasn't positive impact they were having and I think no matter how good your business model is, no matter how incredible the offering is that you've got, if you don't actually make those authentic decisions and be accountable to the people that work for you, how positive can your company actually ever be? Hmm. So can you tell us about Brightshift and how you got there and how it's different from these other startups that you're describing? Absolutely. So I started Brightshift um, June last year. So I've been there well, just over a year now. I had my, my year anniversary in June. And I first heard about Brightshift. It was in an incubator, actually, in my university. They were coming in. We had these two different uh, startups being part of the incubator. And somebody said, you know, you should, you should meet this guy, Toby. He's, he's pretty cool. And I was actually on the panel to choose the, the incubator. So I did actually have some bias mm-hmm. in that. Um, 
he gave a, a really good talk, made the company sound incredible. I messaged him afterwards and said, hey, you know, I'm actually doing a piece on neuro-linguistic programming for one of my essays, and you're kind of talking about this data-led marketing. I can kind of see a parallel. Maybe I could send this to you afterwards. And that was the time that I was absolutely manic on LinkedIn, messaging people, asking for coffees and stuff, before the world of COVID when you could only do a Zoom call. And I actually went and met the founder um, on, it was a Wednesday, and that's completely a fact that you don't need to know. But it was actually my submission day for my second term of uni. Um, in my second year, it was my submission day. So I'm a fairly last minute person. I had about 6,000 words to write 24 hours before my submission time at 12 p.m. I didn't sleep. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. Do you know what? It was actually a doable task. I think it was a good KPI. And um, (laughs) I hadn't slept for about 50 hours. I'd been writing, you know, who knows what I've been writing, really. Click submit. So I got changed and I jumped on the tube and I went and met Toby and my eyes were shutting. There was no way I was staying awake in this meeting, but I somehow managed to pitch myself to him and talk to him. And he said, this is, you're really excited. This is great. And I thought, if you think that I'm exciting right now, wait until I've actually slept. Um, and after that, we just, he ended up getting into the incubator and I, I knew that he would because I voted for him. Um, but the opportunity came up to do, be an intern, actually, an operations intern. And I was already working at an Australian company, in a, a SaaS company, um, three days a week. And this was sort of in summer, so I had a spare two days to play with where I wasn't actually supposed to be doing my uni work. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go for this. I'm interested in operations. and. I interviewed, got the job, was there for about two, three weeks, and I realized that actually this was a really exciting opportunity. It was the first company that I'd met where I completely believed in the vision and believed in the founder. It it was this subconscious connection where it wasn't about, yeah, the product's great. It wasn't second guessing. I just had a blind faith that we were going to get where he said we were going to get to and where the company was going. What was it? Could you, can you pull that out and tell us what it, what it was? I think it was, do you know what? I think it was raw authenticity, raw trust. Mm. This business was being built on a situation that come about in somebody's life where they said something needs to change in the world because there's too many bad things happening. And that was not just an emotive story that somebody was trying to sell me to. That wasn't just a marketing hook. That was a true real thing that was happening where he said, these things are happening in my life that I don't just want to sit there and be a company that sort of pushes paper, I can make a tangible difference. And I believed in that difference and I wanted to be part of it. And I think that Mm. raw authenticity was what really grabbed me and what really made me trust the process. And, you know, started working, um, was doing things that I had no idea what I was doing. I was really winging it. And (laughs) things started to develop to the point where it just made sense for me to take that step up. So I became sort of head of operations, which was quite ironic because we didn't really have an operations team. So I just was the same person in operation as just me. Um, And we really started to grow the company. And I, it was probably the first time that I felt completely independent in what I was doing and supported to make those decisions. And it was the first time I was really an expert in the room, which is interesting to say, because I didn't have that much knowledge, but I really felt like an expert when I was making these decisions. And through that, I became COO, which is incredible. It was actually so mm. if I look back and say, what was my goal in life? It was probably on my list of goals in life to hit at some point, And I'm here to varying degrees. Sometimes, you know, the day to day life is you could be doing sort of the bare minimum basic tasks that you'd ask your intern to do. And then you'd be making properly big strategic decisions for the next 12 months, all in the same hour. 
which is just typical startup life. But why Brightshift specifically is different to all of the other startups that I've worked for is, I'd say, a cross between this raw authenticity, this actual mission and vision, but also following through that sort of vision and that those goals that the company have got directly it, well, it directly manifests into the decisions we make, whether it's with people, whether it's with the finances, whether it's mistakes that we make, do we try and sort of put a spin on it? Or do we just put our hands up and say, we've made a mistake, we're learning, we're a startup, we'd love mm. to understand how to make this better in the future. And that's really why I'm still here. This is the longest I've ever been actually at a startup, which is incredible, really. I usually spend about six months before I think, time to move on and this is the longest I've ever been at company and I see myself here for a, a good couple of years yet. So you, your your degree um, was quite unusual in that it ha- gave you a huge amount of practical experience of working with a large number of organizations it was a, it was a much more hands-on type of of uh, program so you, you've worked for some conventional organizations as well mm-hmm. um, what do you think, if you take a broad view of the world, what do you think needs to change in business to align with your values and your generation and what they want out of work? I think sort of going back to, to what I previously said, it's about this authentic impact. It's not just in terms of the CSR tactics and the marketing tactics and making sure that that comes down in terms of the decisions that they make and whether they're all literally just marketing plays. But I think also, you know, a different layer of transparency. I see so many companies that have these big billboards, have these big efforts to say we are great. And then things come out in the news, things travel on social media. And it's so easy, especially for my generation, to find stuff out that would never have got out to the public any other time. And I think on my personal values as a 22-year-old, I'd say that's a massive thing, the transparency and actually believing that this company is good and they're doing what they're what they're promising to do but from a from a business set with my with my business head on i'd say really making sure that these this impact that you're trying to have as a company isn't just a big goal or a big vision it's actually filtered down into the day-to-day operations and decisions that you make and you know every element of the company has got to be authentic for your entire company to be authentic it can't just be one thing on a piece of paper that you decide a sticky note on a marketing board to say this is where we want this is what we want to say to people it, it really needs to filter down and for people to believe at every step level of the of the organization and to believe in it i love that um so what are some of the biggest leadership challenges that you think need to be solved in the world today I'm going to kind of change tax here a little bit. Um, I'd love to get your perspective, your generation's view on the kind of societal, corporate, whatever they might be. What are some of the biggest challenges facing the world that you think need to be solved? I think for me, and this sort of touches on something that I feel day to day, the pressure, is this idea of balancing innovation stability. And that's kind of a broad concept, but it's obviously the world's changing every day. The markets are changing, business is very dynamic and more and more opportunities are coming around for the world to be disrupted. And everybody's trying to stay on top of this game. But actually from a startup perspective, from a perspective that I face every day, making sure that companies are stable, making sure that your operations are stable and this absolute fight between, we need to be ahead of tomorrow, but you also need to be succeeding today. And that can really manifest in in loads of different places, to be honest, in terms of, 
We need to be finding the talent for tomorrow, but we also need to be looking after our people today. But that fight of where do you put the resources, where do you put your ideas around that, um, it's something we've specifically struggled with in terms of having these grand views of where we want to be in two, three, four years, having a diagram on the wall with our timelines and how much money we want to make in six months, but actually how much money we're making today. That's probably a good indicator to start. I think that is a massive power dynamic and a massive resource struggle that I think is going to become you know, an even bigger problem than it is today. And maybe that's biased because I'm feeling it quite a lot in my current role. But I really believe it's something that's going to it's going to continue to, to grow almost like a snowball effect when everybody's searching for this next best, next best thing. Are you are you feeling that you're able to keep the balance up? Are you are you finding that balance in your work? I think if you'd have asked me six months ago, I would have said no. Um, but I think that's probably because we spent a lot of time really deciding where we wanted to go as a company and sort of this split between doers and thinkers we were spending a lot of time thinking and i think in the thinking space you've got the innovating space whereas in the doing space you've got the stability space but we've found we can control this now by having actuals having foundations having that stability day to day but supporting people to think further than the realms of the walls that we're within um so i say that that's something that We've, we don't, we're definitely not 100% there yet. We can definitely innovate more and we can definitely be more stable. But I think where we are now for a start of our size, we have it nicely under control that both elements can thrive. So when you think about um, the business as it moves forward, what are the, 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 the scarcest skill sets that you see out there, the ones that you are – and I'm not thinking about you know programming skills or – or financial skills or anything like that, but human skills. What are the things that you, you, you're looking for that you go, it's really hard to find people like that? That's a, that is a difficult one. I, I have a benefit of working with a lot of very skilled people. Um, but I think with that, I suppose, to answer your question, is people that remain human. I know it sounds a bit odd, but compassion is something that's massively come out to me as a big skill that people need to have. And through both seeing extreme compassion and through seeing no compassion at all i found that compassion is a massive skill set that you need to have subconsciously it can't just be a oh i need to feel compassionate right now uh are you okay so that sort of thing that's just completely robotic it's not going to work having that subconscious drive to think right we're in a new age we're in a time where people have got to jump on a zoom call right do they actually have the techniques to use their laptop i think that was a massive sort of digital shift that happened through no fault of anybody's you know this pandemic came and hit everybody and some people are very tech savvy i'm personally not very digitally inclined i get by but i'm not sort of the most tech savvy of my generation and i know that my parents really struggle with sort of this shift to online you know where is that button was sort of the same thing that we heard over and over again every day of the first two months of the pandemic um, but i think it's about having that compassion to say do you know what what you see on the screen is not the full picture people have got things going on in their lives and to extrapolate that out of sort of the pandemic and this situation knowing that at the end of the day it's us versus the problem it's not me versus you and i think that's something that i've really brought into my life both both personally and professionally to say let's let's you know club together to solve a problem here let's not be focusing on why you're terrible let's think about you know let's have some compassion for the situation and so that's sort of, it's not, maybe not answer your question in terms of it's difficult to find, but it's certainly something that I think people could definitely work on. 
um, especially now I think it's going to be more needed than ever in the next sort of six months at the sort of world we're going to be facing. I love that. And I think the, uh, yeah, me versus the problem versus me versus you, I think that's a, that's a great, a great phrase. And in, in a startup, I mean, you know, I, I sit on advisory boards of startups and they're not what everybody thinks they are. That's often the most difficult, hard kind of uh, challenge that you could possibly think of in terms of the workload and the pressure and so on. So the idea of working in this pressure cooker environment where the money's running out, the time is running out, um, but the opportunity is and the excitement is there. How do you remain compassionate when you've got all of this kind of potentially stress that could turn negative very easily? What, what do you do personally to to kind of reframe around that? I think I think it's two things. I think there's times when stress hits and you physically feel like you can't breathe, let alone taking into consideration somebody else's emotions. I think that's a bit of a stretch in those situations. I think it's having your own set of values and your own set of sort of rules of how you react and how you interact with other people. I think you're always your own worst enemy and I never condone being angry at yourself and you know taking it on yourself but at the end of the day you wouldn't treat somebody else in that same regard and you shouldn't and I think it's about taking a step back and saying I might not be able to be compassionate now but I certainly don't want to be horrendous to you right now and I think the second part of that is learning to apologize. We have it a lot. We have it when one person gets like the funnel of all of you know everything hits the fan and it hits one person and they are going to be so stressed and they are short with you they shout at you you know it gets to the point where you kind of you check yourself 10 minutes later you get a message saying really sorry i blew up at you there and that's fine because everybody does it and i think it's you know it goes both ways to say if somebody blows up at you have a little bit of compassion there because you want them to be okay with it when when things don't go right for you and nobody's a saint all of the time nobody can at all put everybody's emotions you know first there's always going to be times when that pressure cooker kind of gets there's too much pressure and it and it blows but actually having the behavior where people accept that and they you know they accept your apology and compassion goes both ways i think you've just got to keep that channel open and treat others how you want to be treated because you are definitely going to be at points where they do have to treat you with compassion how did you get to be so emotionally intelligent? I mean, I've known you for all of 30 minutes at this point and you're 22 and um, it's just, it's just coming out of everything you say. And I'm like, I want to, I want to sort of have you teach courses for me. I mean, Probably good, good parenting. <laughs> I think, I mean, maybe subconsciously part of that is that I've always been absolutely fascinated with how people work. Um, I've always been fascinated by how I work because I've got a very, complex brain in my opinion I actually don't have any idea how I work and a lot of the time I open my mouth and I can't remember what I say but I've always been fascinated by how other people work what makes them tick how some people are incredible in some situations but terrible in others and how that then manifests into what they do with their lives and I used to think that it was all you know genetics or absolute magic that that was the way that I thought and then I realized realized that my dad's in a neurolinguistic programming master master practitioner and he's probably been subconsciously priming me since the age of two. So I might have something to do with it, but <laughs> I don't know what the rest is. Maybe it's just magic water or something. <laughs> so what have you been learning about yourself during um, COVID, leading a business in mm -hmm. COVID? Say the biggest thing is that I don't like to work from home. Mm. I am definitely a very location-driven person. And I like to get up in the morning and go to work. That's, that's sort of my rhythm. I like to wake up put a certain podcast on or a certain piece of music, go to work, especially living in London when I was working. 
that was such a massive part of my day was the journey to work. Uh, sitting down, being in the office, uh, being amongst people, having being that sort of environment mentally, having that mindset there, to suddenly be working at home in one room facing one screen at a desk was a massive shift for me. And that then made me think, right, if you really want to succeed in life, how do you make it that you can sort of prime this mindset to anywhere? And that's not saying that I need to be 100% okay with working from home because everybody knows the way that they work and where they work best. I will never work best from being at home, but there's definitely going to be times where this is where I have to work from. So how do I start to think, right, what things do I lack working from home? What do I feel out of control of? What do I need to sort of improve? On a really sad note, I've got a whiteboard and a potted plant now, which is definitely helping my mood and a desk lamp. So that's definitely improved. So apart from that I don't like working from home, I think that you really need to maintain relationships with people that aren't uh, situational. I find this with my friends, not just in sort of business terms, but personally. If your relationship is completely transactional with people, they'll get used to you only going to them when a transaction needs to be made. And it doesn't become very value exchanged. It just becomes purely transactional. There's no wider connection for you to talk to them. And that sounds something quite basic. But when I used to see people in person, you'd always sit there, you'd chat with them. You'd always have a reason to interact with them. And that relationship would really build up over time. Obviously, sitting in front of a computer where the only way you're going to communicate to somebody is if you send them a message or you call them. Although it's not as personal as ringing your friend up and saying, you know, how's life? What have you been up to? Having that conscious check-in with people that you're, not, you're no, now longer not talking to or seeing day to day, I think I found is really important in terms of keeping the trust up. And obviously, I work with so many incredible people. And I, you know, there's times when you've got to ask for favours at six o'clock at night. You need to get something pushed through. I don't ever want that to be a fact that they think, oh, she's messaging me again. I don't want those transactional relationships where it feels like I'm constantly asking people for things. Even in a work environment where technically we are paying them to do a job, it should never just be transactional. And that was something that I definitely took for granted when we could physically talk to people. And it's something that I've learned to proactively do now as a leader in COVID. So since you left university... What, what do you think has been the biggest growth that you've experienced personally as a leader in Brightshift? I mean, I think going full-time is pretty crazy. And I know that sounds like a really Gen Z thing to say, like I haven't worked a day in my life. Um, but I was very much used to balancing university and one to two jobs at the time. And that kept me very fulfilled and very stimulated. And I definitely felt like my level of success was pretty all right. I was topped up because even if I dropped the ball on one thing, I had you know one or two other things to fall back on and say, actually, I'm doing okay. And going full time and really taking on the accountability, the ownership of an ongoing operation, not being able to just check out on the days when I wasn't working, that was a bigger mental shift than I anticipated. And I threw myself into a different role for three months just so that we could plan out our hiring structure and have a training plan there so that somebody could come in and I could say, look, Here's how we do things. Here's how you can iterate. Here's how we can support you. So the hiring decision was well thought through. And that was chucking me into a job that I'd never done before with people I'd never worked with, um, doing different things. And I can say that it's not a career path I'll ever go down again. I'm definitely not a project manager at heart, but it's something that I really needed to do in terms of my growth, learning how to lead from within as well as sort of making those big decisions. And I realized that actually that was more my leadership technique 
I definitely enjoyed leading from within the pact and actually understanding how things worked because I definitely used to make a lot of decisions from sort of the wheel of the ship and not the engine room. So I know it's a huge way off, but I want you to imagine yourself uh, at retirement. So it's probably somewhere in your late 90s, uh, <laughs> given advances in science and so on. So you, in the 90s, you'll be the new 50s, so don't worry. It'll be, it'll be great. Um, what, what do you hope to leave behind as a legacy? I, I would like my legacy to live on through other people, I think. I definitely want to make a big impact in business. I'm not sure what scale I'd like that impact to be. But my biggest energy source in life is helping people. And whether that's across the road or with a career decision, you know, either scale is great. That's something that I've acknowledged really gives me a lot of energy. And I'd like to be in a position throughout my life where, you know, small or big, something that I've said or done has impacted somebody's life. And one conversation could mean that my legacy could live on in the decisions that they make. And I'd really like that to be the legacy that I leave. I'd like that to live on through people and the decisions that they make, because I think if I spend my entire life funneling my energy into one business, somebody else could take that on and it could fail the next day. That's sort of the way that I see things. And as much as I love the companies that I've worked for, and I'd love to be really successful in my career, touch wood, um, I wouldn't want myself just to be focused on building up a legacy that could just disappear tomorrow. I'd really like it to live on in terms of the decisions that people make, and the way that they live their lives and hopefully positively impact as many people as possible. So related to that, what advice would you give your younger self? Definitely that success isn't linear. That is something that mm. I, it took a long time for me to realize that. Growing up, I was very academic. Um, purely by comparison, my brother's very practical and has made great success in life for not being super academic he's an incredible person with an incredible mind and the academic tests were not the best way to measure his level of success I always thought right I like rules I like structure if I get 100% in a test I've done well that's a measure of success and that really conditioned my brain to think that success was this one thing and would always be externally created and externally validated so when I took a break from education on my gap year I realized that success manifests in so many different ways and obviously moving to London and working with startups, I realized that there really was a lot of different areas of things you could succeed in life. And actually, you need to define what success is for you and really back yourself. Sort of something that I would deem as successful might not be anything to do with anybody else. And they might say, well, all you've done today is get out of bed. But actually, some days when you're having a, an exhausted day on a Saturday and getting out of bed seems like the biggest task possible, that's a massive success to get out and to carry on with your day. And nobody's going to sit there and give you a medal for that because, you know, unless it's on their radar and unless you've sort of shared with them that you're having a struggle, that's not something that they're going to say, you know, well done for being successful today. It's really got to come, with, come from within. And I wish that I had told myself that um, or somebody else had told myself that when I was younger, that don't be so obsessed with all of these other barometers of success that people are laying down because it's really them either deflecting or sort of, externally validating themselves on other people's measures and that maybe would have helped me get to where I am sort of mindset wise a bit quicker and really back myself in terms of what I believe in now and where I want to hold myself accountable in life so good and so true <laughs> well Talia thank you for coming on you uh give me 
lots to think about. I love the term uh, raw authenticity. I'm going to probably steal that from you, which is not very authentic of me, but I really, really like it. Um, so thanks for, for being so transparent and, and coming on with us. Oh, thank you guys yeah. for having me. Thank you, Talia. Um, we absolutely loved having you on. And uh, to our listeners, just remember the world is evolving. So are you. 